0: Uh, This morning we're going to read uh, in Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 11, we're going to read the entire chapter and then we're going to uh, consider this text and uh, a number of other ones from the book of Numbers this morning. As we've been reading through the Bible in a year together, that many of you have been working your way through the book of Numbers in your Old Testament readings this week, and we'll continue to do that uh, in your readings next week. And so what I want to do is I want to just cover a little bit of the ground that you yourselves have been working through, as well as perhaps give just a little bit of uh, hints about some of the important themes that you're going to come across this next week. So Numbers chapter 11, uh, this is the word of God. Now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then Grounded it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If... This is how you're going to treat me. Please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes. And do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will eat it for just, you will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, "Why did we ever leave Egypt?" But Moses said. Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meaty for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet, the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since he spoke up and said, Moses, my lord, stop them! But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now, a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night, and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people. And he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibrath Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth at Hava the people traveled to Hazoroth and stayed there. We'll pray before we uh, look at this text and also a a number of other texts in numbers. Uh, Just one uh, item for you to pray for, uh, for me this week. Uh, I've been asked to uh, go to the University of Guelph on Thursday night and take part in a Interfaith dialogue with uh, the Muslim Student Association and a Jewish Association and power to change and so on Thursday night uh, seven o'clock, I'm going to be uh, hopefully addressing uh, The question is how how do I know? That Christianity is true given the range of religious options that there are I remember uh, Speaking at York University a couple years ago the first time I spoke there uh, the Muslim uh, dialogue, and uh, many of you were praying for me at that time. And uh, I remember uh, sitting in the front row as uh, they're doing all the introductions, uh, recognizing that although I get nervous every time I speak anywhere, uh, even even on Sunday mornings, uh, it had been a long time since I had been just dead scared. <laughs> and I was sitting there in the front row, uh, just dead scared, and. Then, around the time I know that many people were praying for me, there was just this uh, release and, and sense of peace that just settled on me. And, and I knew that I was there you know, to serve the Lord. It wasn't, wasn't me. Uh, it, it was God's Spirit, if there would be any victory. And, and so I would encourage you, please, please, please be in prayer for me this week. Uh, let's pray. I'm going to ask you, actually, in First Kings 8... Solomon adopts a posture of standing and raising his hands by the altar when he prays. You don't need to raise your hands. Uh, You can if you'd like. But just because we tend to go on autopilot when we do things the same way every time, let's stand to pray uh, this morning. Our God, you are a great God. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be honored and worshipped. And we would ask, Lord, this morning that by your spirit you will lead us to understand your word so that we can please you by uh, loving it and by obeying it. I pray that you will instruct us. And Father, I pray that you will also uh, bind us together in unity this morning. We are your children, and I pray that you will help us to act like it. I pray that you will increase our love and concern for one another. I pray that you will allow us to enter into Christ-honoring, spirit-filled relationships. I pray that there will be great fruit. I pray that you will produce a harvest of righteousness in our hearts as individuals and also uh, collectively as your body here. Father, for those who are not here, whether they are traveling or ill, uh, I pray that you will be with them. I pray that by your spirit you will draw them wherever they are. Uh, Close to yourself this morning. We'd ask that uh, you would uh, give us this week opportunities to uh, share our faith, whether it's in uh, our neighborhood or at work or in whatever interactions we have. I pray that you will allow us to serve by your Spirit uh, as gospel messengers in this world, Uh, not only by how we live, but also by what we say. Open doors and then give us words. Father, this morning, As we look at the book of Numbers, we confess that uh, we are less familiar with this book than with uh, the Gospels, and we struggle perhaps to read it uh, more so than we do uh, the Gospels or, or Romans or whatever. But this is your word. You have not erred in giving us any verse in the Bible. It is exactly in all of its symmetry what it ought to be instruct us in this part of your word for all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful. Apply it to our hearts this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to avoid going through the motions, I'm almost tempted to ask you to stand for the entire sermon. I mean... I have to, you know, it's not, it's not unheard of, you know, uh, but, but maybe not, uh, that'll be for another week. Structurally, uh, the book of Numbers begins with a census, and then towards the, then there's a transition, and it's not quite the second half, but the second part of the book, you have another census. And the structure is for this reason. The first census is for the generation that is not going into the promised land. They're going to die in the wilderness. The second census is for those who are going to go in. So the census, the numbers, are actually relevant to the structure. Okay? So when we read these lists, you're not just reading sort of repetition in terms of census. You're actually seeing God's plan. Here are the people who were brought out of Egypt who aren't going into the promised land. Here's the next generation that is if they are faithful. Okay, So so the census that you come across here is actually relevant uh, to what's going on in redemptive history. Also, uh, if you were reading the text, as you ought to have been doing, you will recall uh, Numbers chapter 7 as likely your favorite chapter uh, in the Bible. Numbers 7 is 89 verses and you'll recall consists of So and so, the leader of this tribe, brought their offering to the Lord, and it was a golden bowl weighing this number of shekels, and then this silver weighing this number of shekels. And you go, and and he goes through. And today we would just say, and then so and so, the leader of the tribe of whatever, came and brought the same thing. But they don't do that. They give you every detail again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. To the point where, you know, if you're interested, you can start really going through it, going, is someone going to read something different sometimes? It becomes interesting, like, to read. But like you've done that, you've done that a few times, you realize, no, 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 they don't. It's the same. Every time you read that chapter, it's going to be the same. It's not going to change. So what's the point there? Why spend 89 verses on that? It's the longest chapter by far in the book. Well, there has to be a point, right? It's not a waste of space. One of the things that you're going to discover in the history of Israel, and this is from, you, you get this in the Joseph narrative, and it will run all through the history of Israel. There is always division and strife between the tribes. Always. But when it comes to the tabernacle, whether they're a big tribe or a small tribe, they all bring Everything identically. That is, they all have an identical share in the tabernacle. No one has greater claim to God on the basis of offering. There's an utter symmetry in the tribes. And so the lesson there is that when God approaches his people, he wants them unified with equality in relationship to himself. It's a macro point of that chapter, at least in my judgment. Now, when you come to chapter 10... Verse 11, you read these words. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant. Then the Israelites set out. Israel has been camped at the base of Sinai for 11 months, just under a year. So you've had the Exodus from Egypt coming to Sinai, the, the theophany, the law, the tabernacle, the tabernacle is built, the is filled with glory, uh, the ordination of the priests in Leviticus. Almost one full year camped at Sinai. Now, the cloud lifts. For the first time in about a year, the people are going to move. They set out. There's blessing. There's, there's glory. And you read this in verse 33. Of chapter ten. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. Now, you hit chapter 11, verse 1. The very first thing you're told about the people is what? Now, the people complained. This is supposed to remind you of something. You've read something awfully similar before, haven't you? When's the last time that people were complaining? What happened in terms of sequence? The last time that people were complaining was right after what event? The Exodus. They're brought out into the wilderness, and they immediately start complaining about water and food. Right? In fact, Exodus 15.22 says they started complaining after how long? Three days. Here, they travel for three days and start complaining. In Exodus 15, they travel for three days and start complaining about the exact same things, food and water. Now, either what you have here is an utter failure to be creative if you're just making up stuff. Or you have Israel doing literally exactly what they did immediately after the exodus. And that's what's happening. Down to the number of days. Why? This is one of the most frightening lessons of this book. The people have been redeemed out of Egypt. They've been miraculously delivered. God has provided miraculously for them with both food and water. You've had the giving of the law, you've had Theophany, God's special revelation, you've had Moses, you've had the tabernacle, you've had the golden calf, then the building of the tabernacle, the glory cloud filling the tabernacle, with the ordination of Aaron and his sons, instructions for day of atonement, Levitical law, all that God has done, and the people haven't changed at all. Not one bit. They are exactly the same a year after being at Sinai than they were before they got to Sinai. Nothing has changed. External law cannot change a heart. That's the point. You can sit or stand in as many religious services as you want and it will not change who you are. What we need is internal work. Externals do not change who we are. Israel had a year of the best externals possible. And they literally hadn't changed even in the smallest, tiniest bit. So what do we need? Another year at Sinai? No, what we need is the Holy Spirit. Moses cries out to God, ah, what am I supposed to do with this people? These people that you've given me. Do I really have to put up with them? And God says, Moses, just relax. And Moses, says, you know what, Lord, if, you, if I have any favor in your eyes, why don't you just kill me? God says, no, you know what, Moses, you don't, you don't need to die just yet. You will, but not not just yet. It's not over this issue. What, you, what we need actually isn't death. What we need is a transformation of heart. And law is not going to do that, Moses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give my spirit. You get 70 elders and I'm going to fill them with my spirit. That's exactly what happens. And there's this beautiful, this beautiful little section... Where Eldad and Medad are, are not with the group, they're they're in in the camp and and they're still filled with the spirit. And this young guy panics, runs and tells Moses and Joshua, Moses, you've got to stop these guys. Like they're filled by the spirit. What could be worse? <laughs> you know, stop them. Like they're not one of us. Which has been a statement which has echoed down through history until today. Lord, they're not part of our denomination. Lord, they don't have the right theology. Lord, they, they don't they don't dot their theological eyes and cross their exegetical T's just like we do. Lord, how can that church be growing? They're not part of us. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Well, and sometimes people are, and sometimes we're jealous for our own sake. Would you, you don't, need to t- you don't need to answer. Would you actually really be happy if another church in town experienced revival, like real revival, and and a few hundred people legitimately were saved and were added to their number? Would you rejoice about that? I'd like to say that I would. I would. I'd, I'd like to believe that's true of me. Depends which church. Right? Do I, do I really want to go and meet with my colleagues at Calvary Baptist and hear about the 500 people who were saved at their service this Sunday? I'd like to think I would be okay with that. Like I, I, I do. I would like to think that of myself. But would I be? How petty and jealous really is my heart? I think I'd be able to say the right thing, like, I'm happy for you, praise the Lord. But I wonder if I'd mean it deeply, like really deeply in the core of my being. Or if I'd be consumed by envy. I don't know. I don't know. Let alone if it was a different denomination. Actually, actually, that would be better. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's got to be a little bit honest about these things. And Moses says, oh, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. What he's saying is, I long for the day when the entire covenant community has the spirit. But he's recognizing that in the old covenant, not everyone in Israel was saved. Not everyone in Israel was regenerate. Not everyone in Israel knew the Lord. Which is why there's so much apostasy and failure and sin. And so then when you get to, the new co- when you get to Jeremiah 31, and, and you know, everything's gone wrong, and Jerusalem's about to be destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Lord promises, look, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And the author of Hebrews you know, quotes this passage and says, it's not that there's anything wrong with the old covenant. The problem wasn't with the covenant, the problem was with us. There's nothing wrong with God's law. There's something wrong with our hearts. And so external law, this is the the thing, the old covenant, he says, the, the new covenant will not be like the previous covenant, the former covenant. Why? I will take my law and I will put it, I will write it on your minds and on your hearts. It's internalized because the external law doesn't change anything. It's only the law inside that changes things. And by the spirit of God, that law is going to be put inside in the new covenant. It's an amazing difference. Makes all the difference in the world. So that in the old covenant you had to tell people to know the Lord, in the new covenant you don't, because everyone who's part of the new covenant community knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. I've forgiven their sins, God says. What Moses is doing here is he's recognizing Lord. The only solution is for every one of your people to have the Holy Spirit. And do you realize? But that that's one of the diagnostic features of the New Covenant. Everyone in the New Covenant has the Holy Spirit. Because every single person in the New Covenant, uh, you're not part of the New Covenant unless you're born again, and you're not born again except by the power of the Holy Spirit, John 3. And, and then, you know, if you have the Spirit, then you are the children of God. You know, Paul argues very clearly in Romans 8 that if you don't have the Spirit, you are not a child of God. Every child of God has the Spirit. Everyone. And it is an enormous improvement over the old covenant where not everyone had the Spirit and people died in their rebellion and complaining and murmuring against God. And Moses here says, looking forward to that day, says, oh, God, may it happen that one day there is a people, a covenant community of yours where everyone has the Spirit. And I wonder if he actually believed it was possible. But it is. And we're living in it. We live in an age where every single person who's part of God's covenant community has the Holy Spirit of God. And and, and we must never, never miss the breathtaking significance and glory of that fact. What we take for granted, Moses longed for. Now, chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? So, what we see of Moses is golden calf, a relatively discouraging experience after being with God on Sinai. Levitical law, Death of Nadab and Abihu. Departing, immediately people complaining, God delivering, and now his own family turns against him. And Moses intercedes for Miriam, the one who's leading the attack. Chapters 13 and 14, the spies go out to check the promised land. And they come back. And Caleb and Joshua say, we can do it. And the ten say, no, we can't. Which must, must be taken to prove that boards are not always right. (laughs) The people are rebelling against what God has clearly told them he will do. The trajectory that Moses is experiencing as leader is not up and up. He finally, you know, gets to a point where the people, or say the people rather, finally get to a point where they say this in chapter 14, verse 1. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness... Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, verse 4 is utterly critical to understand this book. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is what they're saying. God, we want to undo your plan of redemption. At first, we appreciated Passover. We appreciated coming out of Egypt. We appreciated the the gold and the silver. We appreciated this crossing of the Red Sea. Manna was okay for a little while. That whole Sinai experience was kind of neat. Sorry for the golden calf. Um, You know, nice that you've taken up residence in our midst, given us this law. But you know... Taking all of what you've given us and, 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 and comparing it to the cucumbers we used to eat, you know, I think I'm going back. Thanks but no thanks for the, for the substitutionary blood of the Lamb. Thanks but no thanks for Moses. We're going to appoint our own leader and we're going to undo your redemption. You could not have a stronger repudiation and rejection of God than this. The people are not just complaining. They are literally saying, God, we don't want your redemption. We're going back. Not for the first time. If you're reading the text properly. You wonder... Well, if you hadn't read the text before, you would just actually expect that this would be the end. There would be no Numbers 15. Right? Like you, why is God still working with these people? But he does. In fact, we haven't even seen, you, you just keep reading, there are centuries of worse to come. But even here, the grace and the patience of God is utterly astounding. They were completely repudiating all of his redemption and sovereign power. So then. God is upset. Moses and Aaron are upset. The people, God says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. Your sons and daughters and your families that you're so concerned about, I'm going to bring them in and they're going to be fine. So what you were worried about, that your family is going to die, is the opposite of what's going to happen. You're going to die. You're not going in. The people say, we sinned. We're going to go into the promised land like God told us to. Except now God says to Moses, don't go, I'm not going with you. And what do the people do? They go on up. And what happens? They're defeated in battle. This is utter spiritual lunacy. God says, go up. They say, no. Then they repent. And their repentance is, now we're going to disobey God again. God now says, don't go. They say, you know what? Appreciate that advice. We're going to go to obey God. Like they will not listen, no matter what, and then they're defeated. Now, chapter sixteen. The community leaders challenge Moses and Aaron. You see, Moses is being fought every step of the way. First, it was Miriam and Aaron. Now, with these community leaders. And God is getting reasonably upset. Moses continues to intercede for them. He intercedes for these community leaders just as he had interceded uh, for Miriam. Now, Numbers 20. This is a text that you're familiar with uh, in terms of Moses and the rock. Verse 2. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Again! Like, no matter how many times God provides, the people are continually opposing Moses and Aaron. It's like it's their job. They never stop. They never, never stop. No matter how much God works through Moses and Aaron, no matter how much God provides for them, they never stop. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. They're saying, When God judged our brothers and they died, it would have been better if we had died too. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It is no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. There is no change no matter what God does. There's no change in these people. Can imagine how aggravating this would have been for Moses. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult this would have been. I can't even begin to imagine, well, for for a number of reasons. I can't even begin to imagine what's it like to be God, faced with this, over and over and over again. We'd rather be dead than redeemed. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out. And the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Well, what's going on here? Is Moses not able to go to the promised land because he loses his temper i don't think so well that seems to be a sort of a common reading of the text i just don't think that that's persuasive um like how could you leave these people and not lose your temper like i mean i don't know what we expect from this guy right Uh, And and if losing your temper excludes you from the promised land, good luck to most of you who have lost your temper in circumstances far less trying than what Moses was enduring. Earlier, God had actually told Moses to hit a rock with his staff and to bring out water. So it's not just that he strikes the rock either. Likely, it's the tone of, of his speech. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock. Must... We do this. But it's not Moses. It's God. There is no plural pronoun, me and God. Moses doesn't bring water out of anything. God does. But it seems that there's almost this verbal slip which shows Moses' arrangement. Now it's sort of, it's, I'm responsible for this provision. But it's not. It's only God. And so Moses sort of arrogates to himself some credit for it and doesn't do things God's way. Because of that, he's told he will not go into the promised land. Now, verse 20, or chapter 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. Like this... You've seen this before, right? And this is probably the first time in history that you have the question, are we there yet, being asked on a road trip (laughs) by Moses to God. Are we there yet? Please, please, please. Can we just get there? Please. Or is it like, if you guys in the backseat, you better stop that. Stop. Just let's get there. And this is before they had veggie tails to put on to keep the kids amused. This is a terrible experience. If if it was our generation, everyone would have been on their iPhone and no one would have been paying attention to anything. But no, they're impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. We detest this miserable food. How many times? The exact same thing. No matter what God does. No change at all. It's identical again and again and again and again. But look at verse 5 carefully. They spoke against God. They spoke against God. The holy God of the universe, and they spoke against Him. There is nothing worse than that. This attitude of, God, you owe me better than what I have. They spoke against God. And they complained about things He had been providing for them. It's They weren't even right again and again and again. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against Yahweh and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed to the people. Again and again, a sinful people is saved by the intercession of a mediator between them and God. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. They spoke against they spoke against the Lord, and Moses interceded for them, and God provided for salvation and redemption. You can't read this book without being utterly appalled by the God-damned nature of the human heart. It is utterly, utterly wicked. And God is utterly gracious. He perseveres with sinful people, not because of good in us, but because He is goodness. He is good. There is no explanation at all for the preservation of God's plan with the people of Israel apart from God's grace, which is inexplicable. In other words, the only reason these people aren't completely destroyed is simply because of God's heart. He's a God of love. In a way which surpasses understanding. But also... let us be very careful lest we be found to be people who grumble and complain in much better circumstances than the Israelites found themselves in. And let us recognize that if you read this passage and you say, I can't believe that God continued to abide with these people. Cast your eye for just a moment at our society which lives in comparative luxury And hates God. And speaks against God at every opportunity. Who intentionally rejects the word of God. Intentionally, not accidentally. Who constructs moral systems and laws to do the opposite of what God's word says. And does so intentionally. And then look at your own heart. Honestly. Honestly. Before God. What is it. That allows you. To persevere in your relationship with God. Is it the excellent job you do avoiding sin. Is it the exemplary attitude that you always display. Or is the answer the same. Nothing but grace. 100% 100% the grace of God, that any of us know him, that any of us have breath. Every breath we take is because of the grace of God. It is not what we deserve. He's a God of patience and grace and love. But remember we said the question is, in Genesis, can God bring life from death? And the question in Exodus and Leviticus is, is can God actually live in the middle of an unclean people? Can a holy God actually live in the middle of an unclean people? And so you have atonement and all the rest. And what we saw the last couple of weeks is that atonement with the blood of bulls and goats doesn't actually atone for anything. And and the high priest was a sinner, and so the high priest couldn't present the offering that would atone for sin. But But the offering of atonement and the high priest that we need is found in one person, Jesus Christ, who offers himself... Priest without blemish. Sacrifice without blemish. Jesus Christ, as high priest, offers himself. The only reason God can endure these people is not because he overlooks their sin. And it's not because of the Levitical Day of Atonement. It's because even now God looks into the future and he sees and knows the atoning sacrifice that his son Jesus Christ will provide for these people, those who will know him. So that the typology or the pattern of this snake being lifted up after all of this sin, it's not just this one, this is the culmination of it. It's again and again and again. Now these snakes come out and bite the people and they're dying. And a snake is made that is lifted up on a pole and everyone who looks at that is saved. When Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John 3, he says this, verses 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That's likely where the discourse of Jesus ends in John 3. John 3.16, which is the next verse, some of you may have heard of it, uh, actually is probably John's commentary on what Jesus says. Jesus probably didn't say it, so your red-letter Bibles are probably wrong at that point, if you have older versions. Um, Jesus probably stops speaking in, in verse 15. John starts writing explanation in verse 16. So right before, for God so loved the world, you have this. Remember numbers? what Jesus is saying? Well, what John 3 is saying is that if you want to understand John three sixteen, you better read numbers. That changes your... That that gives us a different lens in Bible reading. You want to understand the most famous verse in all of the Bible, in all of biblical history, you need to read Numbers first. Because the love of God in giving his Son to the world is exemplified in the pattern fulfillment of Numbers 21. In the same way that there are a great number of sinners who deserve death, but God provides salvation for them by lifting the snake up on a pole or on a tree. So the great fulfillment of this, the reason that that was actually efficacious, the reason why that looking at that bronze serpent kept people from dying, because if you work through the logic of that, that makes no sense at all. Sure, I'll provide a provision, just look at this bronze snake and you'll be fine. What does a bronze snake have to do with my sin? What does looking up to that have to do with my sin? Nothing. What does the blood of that bull have to do with my sin? Nothing. What does Aaron's son as the priest have to do with mediating between me and God? Nothing. But it's all patterns which are showing you when Jesus comes that it's all in Jesus. Everything is in Jesus. And so, this salvation that comes with looking at the bronze snake, it's not about the bronze snake, it's about Jesus. And so this becomes a pattern so that when Jesus is lifted up, you're supposed to say, wait a minute. There was another time when there was this depraved group of people that God should have wiped off the face of the earth many times before, but he had provided for salvation in the midst of death by lifting something up, a substitute image up on a pole. And now here's the great substitute lifted up on a pole. And everyone who looks to him will be saved from their sin and rebellion and death. Numbers is an amazing book to drive you to Jesus. Numbers teaches you that we need a better covenant community. It teaches you we need a better covenant community where everyone is filled by the Holy Spirit. where where sin is actually atoned for, where there's a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. And and, and something else that's implicit here is that we need someone greater than Moses, even. Moses fails to bring people into the promised land. I think you can probably construct a reasonable pattern here where, where Moses, who symbolizes law, who embodies law, dies Looking at the promised land, but he can't go in. That is, the law can get you right to the border, but it can't get you in. It's Joshua who brings you in. Jesus' name, Jesus. Just a Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. His name's Joshua. The law gets you to the border of the promised land, but if all you have is the law, you'll die looking in when the greater than Moses comes, when, when the great Joshua comes, whose Moses and Joshua rolled into one redeems the people but gets you all the way to the land. That's what you need. We need someone who gets us there. We need someone greater than Moses. And that one who is greater than Moses is going to be lifted up to shed his blood that everyone who looks to him in faith can be saved from death and sin. I'm glad that God persevered through all those centuries. Not because human beings deserve redemption. We most certainly do not. But because of his grace and glory to form this new covenant community through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And those who have been redeemed should rejoice. And those who have been redeemed should worship in awe at the grace of God. And so I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a song of response to worship our Lord.